0: Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Oshman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Oshman Family JCC is an incubator for new expressions of Jewish identity. It creates innovative Jewish learning, celebrations, and arts programs that inspire personal connections to people and ideas from across the Jewish world. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 169, Jewish Language. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson.
1: And I'm Lex Rothberg.
0: And before we get started with our third episode in this series for the seven weeks of the Omer, I want to remind our listeners in Pittsburgh that I'm going to be speaking in Pittsburgh in just six days from now at the annual lecture for Temple Emanuel of South Hills. I'm going to be speaking at the Hollywood Theater in Dormont on the topic of the Other Ten Commandments, The Life-Changing Magic of Tidying Up Judaism. Tickets are only $5, and you can get them at templeemanuelpgh.org. So I'm really excited and honored to be invited to be the annual speaker for Temple Emanuel, and I'm really thrilled to be able to meet our listeners in Pittsburgh. So I hope you'll come. I hope you'll introduce yourself, and I think it's going to be a really fun evening. Now let's get into our interview. As you'll recall, for the Omer, we are trying to introduce seven big ideas, seven big topics that we think people don't think about all that much, but that might be really helpful to stitch together as part of a new thinking about Judaism that you might do on the holiday of Shavuot, which happens seven weeks after Passover. So now we're pretty much in the middle of that period. And we thought we would explore the topic of, quote, Jewish language with our guest, Sarah Bunin Benor. Sarah Bunin-Benor is Professor of Contemporary Jewish Studies at the Hebrew Union College Jewish Institute of Religion in Los Angeles, California. She is also the author of Becoming From, How Newcomers Learn the Language and Culture of Orthodox Judaism. A word that we're going to use somewhat in this conversation is from, which basically means observant, Jewishly observant. Her book, which was published in 2012, won the Sammy Rohr Choice Award for Jewish Literature. She is the founding co-editor of the Journal of Jewish Languages and founder and editor of the Jewish Language Research website and the Jewish English Lexicon. She's published widely on various topics relating to Judaism and language, including Yiddish, Hebrew, other Jewish languages, and the sociology of contemporary American Jewish life. We're thrilled to welcome her to Judaism Unbound today, and this is a topic that we've wanted to talk about for a long time. So, Sarah Bunin Benor, welcome to Judaism Unbound. It's so great to have you.
2: Thank you.
0: I'm happy to be here. Well, we are really interested in the topic of language. And I thought that we could start just by getting a sense of the project that you, let's say, are most famous for, which is your book, Becoming From, about the way that people who are becoming more religious develop their ability to use language in a certain way that, that allows them to become part of this new community that they want to be a part of. I'm interested also in the flip side of that and the question that I think many of our listeners experience, which is the feeling that I want to be part of Judaism, I want to find my place in this, but I don't really want to necessarily become religious. Uh, and yet there's some capacity in which language feels like it's keeping me out. It's It feels like I'm being excluded because either people are using language that I don't really understand or I'm expected to talk in a certain way that I don't talk and don't really want to talk. So could you help us understand and navigate through this question of how language works in this whole question of Judaism and its future?
2: Sure. When I wrote Becoming From, I was focused on an Orthodox community, but the things that I found absolutely apply in other settings. In fact, when I talk about it, I often start by talking about my fair lady and new parents and medical students, all of whom have to learn language to become part of the new communities that they are joining. And the same is true for non-Orthodox Jews who become more engaged with their Jewish communities as adults. If they didn't grow up with the Jewish English of their community that they're joining, then they often feel left out when they go to services and the rabbi uses a lot of Hebrew words or Yiddish words within her English or his English, and they don't understand what is going on. Of course, they also might feel excluded based on the liturgy being in Hebrew, but I would say that's a different issue.
0: I'd love to talk a little bit about the, the work that you did uh, for your book Becoming From. Could you tell us a little bit about how you went about the research project?
2: I started by visiting an Orthodox outreach center, and then I learned that the people who work at the outreach center live in a community about 45 minutes away from there, and so I started hanging out there too. I spent about a year hanging out in the community doing ethnographic research, which means spending time with people, talking to them, and then also doing formal interviews with members of the community about what it was like for them to become Orthodox, and for people who had grown up Orthodox, what they think about the newcomers and their integration process. And I also did an experiment where I recorded samples of speech and played them back for people in the community and asked them questions about it. One example would be recording the same person saying Rosh Chodesh and Rosh Chodesh, in the same sentence, but only with that slight difference in the pronunci- pronunciation of chodesh versus chodesh. And then I would play back both of those excerpts, mix up with many other excerpts for people in the community, and ask them how likely is it that each of these speakers is Orthodox, and how likely is it that they grew up Orthodox. And so then we would find out, based on their responses, what they thought of that particular pronunciation of o versus oi. Or also English features like, do you know where she was going? And do you know where she was going? It might be hard to hear on the podcast, but there was a at the end of the, the second one. Um, and so then we would get a sense of whether this is a salient feature for people in the community
1: by the way rosh chodesh for those listening is the the beginning of a new month um or rosh chodesh whichever, whichever uh, rings truer um so that's that's really interesting and i i guess i have a a bird's eye view kind of question for those of us as as hosts and listeners who who haven't necessarily steeped ourselves in sort of linguistics generally when dan asks about sort of how language can be used to exclude people like what's happening on a basic level with language such that it constructs communities in this way that like using a word or not knowing a word can actually mark you as in or out like what's what's theoretically going on there
2: yes this is not just a jewish phenomenon this is a worldwide phenomenon that when people use a particular language or even a word from a particular language or even a particular pronunciation of one particular word. They are marking themselves as being part of a particular group. And when we use language, we are aligning ourselves with some people and distinguishing ourselves from other people. Um, And it's also common for people to change their language depending on who they're talking to and their situation and what they're talking about. So it's not just Jews who do these kinds of things.
0: So in your work, it feels like, if I'm reading it correctly, that there are at least two types of people who become Orthodox and and try to become part of the Orthodox community and make choices about how they're going to use language. One group really tries to figure out as much as they can to speak like they imagine the right way to speak is, and others sort of proudly are a little different. Could you tell us a little bit about those two groups?
2: I refer to these processes as hyperaccommodation and deliberate distinctiveness. Hyperaccommodation means that the newcomers, the Bale Chuva or BTs, which means those who return, the returnees, are trying to sound like they grew up Orthodox. They're trying to sound like those who are from from birth, FFBs, that those are the terms that are used in the community where I did my research. And they do this by uh, trying to pick up the language, and sometimes they go overboard, and they do it too much. They'll say things like Mamish all the time. Mamish is an intensifier, meaning really. Or they will say Baruch Hashem a lot, or even try to use the Rosh Chodesh kind of pronunciation, even though the community that they're joining, it's more common to say Rosh Chodesh. So that's what I refer to as hyperaccommodation, and it's not just a linguistic phenomenon. We also see this in dress, where women might wear skirts that are even longer than they need to be, or will double cover their hair, meaning wearing a hat and a wig and a hat, a shetel and a hat. Um, and um, we, we see the opposite phenomenon, which I call deliberate distinctiveness, where BTs, intentionally distinguish themselves from FFBs. They don't want people to think that they're trying too hard. They don't feel like they're authentic when they say Rosh Chodesh, and they don't feel like they're authentic when they say Mamish or baruch Hashem all the time. Or maybe they'll say baruch Hashem and or Mamish all the time, but they'll also maintain some slang or some mild profanity, like, this really sucks, in their speech, which uh, people who grew up Orthodox often um, avoid. Um, and this is also not just a linguistic phenomenon. You get interesting combinations in dress, like maybe a black hat with trendy sunglasses, or the woman who made her gefilte fish with curry and turmeric, which were spices I didn't see at all in the Orthodox community, aside from in the homes of some ballet because at that time, international cuisine was not as common as it has become today.
0: One thing that you talked about that I thought was really interesting that I'd love to kind of get a little more fleshed out on this example, but also if there are others, is the the, the fact that a lot of times language is used intentionally or unintentionally to exclude or to create a sort of exclusive club. And yet some of the the language that's used is actually not quote, authentic in the kind of uh, Jewishly exclusive way. So one example that I heard you use was the word bench, which it sort of means bless in... Yiddish. Um, but you talked about how it actually comes from a kind of a Latin root of of Benedictus or something like that, where which was somehow seen as less offensive to Jews than the Germanic word for bless. And so they kind of uh, integrated this idea of to Benedictus, which turned into bench in Yiddish as the, the Yiddish way to say bless. But it's actually not at all kind of like a, a Uh, an authentically or sort of an originally Jewish word. And yet in the in the Orthodox world today, it's it's a word that you often hear a lot of people saying when they're really in the know. So when they want to say the grace after meals, they say, we're going to bench.
2: Well, I would actually argue that bench is one of the most authentic Jewish words. Uh, I, I don't really like to make characterizations as authentic or not, but I think it's it actually reflects Jewish history in a beautiful way, it's one of my favorite words because of that. Um, so it actually comes from Judeo-Italian, Benedice. And, and the reason that Jews in Germanic-speaking lands adopted that word was because the word for to bless, Zägenen, also meant to make the sign, as in make the sign of a cross. And so this is an example of what a linguist, Max Weinreich, refers to as the Lahavdil effect. And this is where, or lahavdi meaning to make a distinction, it's the same root as havdalah, and where Jews are making a distinction between something that sounds too Christian or in Muslim context sounds too Muslim. And instead they use a particular word that feels more Jewish to them. And the reason that Benedice became the word was because some Germanic-speaking Jews had ancestors who came from Italy and brought that word with them. So essentially, they were using the Yiddish of their time, the immigrant language of their grandparents, and that was seen as a Jewish thing for them. So not only should we see that as a very Jewish thing, but we should be impressed that that word has stayed on as part of Jewish English, that it has traveled from one Jewish language, Judeo-Italian, to another Judeo-German or eventually Yiddish, and then to our current Jewish language, Jewish English. So I think it's a beautiful representation of the migration patterns of history and of the Jewish phenomenon of making a distinction, the Lahavdil effect. And another example of this can be found in Sephardic Jewish English, meldado. So the word meldado means learning or studying, and it refers in, Jewish Engl- in Sephardic Jewish English, among those who have Ladino-speaking ancestors, it refers to essentially the Yurtzai learning session, where someone has died and in in memory of that person, the relatives who have survived, study in in that person's honor. And that word is from Ladino, but in Ladino, it is actually originally from Judeo-Greek, meletare or something like that, meaning to read. And that became the word essentially like the Jewish English among Ashkenazi Jews, lane, meaning to read Torah, um but it also meant to study torah and that became a common word in judeo spanish which is known as ladino and has also transferred to jewish english among the and the descendants of ladino speakers
1: i really want to dwell a little bit in this authenticity web of issues i think that's really important and So there's a few reasons. One is like I personally have a stick in the game on this. I like feel very strongly that um, the idea of Jewish authenticity can be can be weaponized in a lot of ways, both on the axis of language and along other other axes of culture, of religion, et cetera, et cetera. And what I mean by that is that um, it, it links to this this idea of like there being a right way. Uh, to speak, a a right pronunciation, uh, like one correct pronunciation as opposed to multiple. And when we look at the the corpus of Jewish history, we know that for all sorts of concepts, A, there have been multiple different words in different places. B, even when it's the same word, it's been pronounced all sorts of different ways. And so when people today theoretically mispronounce something... A, they might not be mispronouncing it. They might just seem to be mispronouncing it to somebody who assumes there's one correct version. And also, even if they are, like, mispronouncing it, like, a lot of our current pronunciations came from, in a sense, like, mispronunciations historically. So, like, it's actually not the worst thing. And so I think we we get lost in this judgment game of proving our street cred by taking down those of others. Like, when, when somebody s- says something... In services or in a schmooze after services like where they mispronounce like we feel secure by being able to call them wrong but but it actually just creates a sense of Jewish history that's much less diverse much more singular um, than I think is fair so I I guess I was curious to hear from you on that front like when we presume a correct pronunciation what's happening and and is it harming people (laughs)
2: Yeah, great question. We absolutely have a sense of authenticity in whatever community we're in. And often we feel that the way we pronounce it is right, or the way that we use a certain grammatical structure is right, and that the way other people do it is wrong. And this is definitely not just a Jewish phenomenon. There is this sense of standard language ideology that there's a correct way of speaking, and those who don't do it are inferior in some way. And we certainly see this in relation to Israeli Hebrew today. A lot of Americans feel that, a lot of American Jews feel that Israeli Hebrew is the correct way of pronouncing Hebrew. And historically, there are many different ways of pronouncing Hebrew, and also many different ways of understanding certain Hebrew words or using Hebrew grammar. And the way that it is in Israel today is influenced especially by European Jews, but also by multiple factors. A lot of American Jews criticize language that doesn't reflect those norms. And they are doing what I see as sociolinguistic projection. They are seeing their language through the eyes of others, in this case, Israelis. And so they're seeing how Israelis might view their own language and they're criticizing the way that they speak or the way that others speak based on that. Now, of course, most American Jews don't use Israeli pronunciations for everything. Most people don't say "Let's go read the Torah, Let's go read the Torah." You know, I can't even say that reish properly. But um, it, you know, most people don't use the Israeli E-resh. They don't have their vowels are not exactly like Israelis with or. Oh, and the T is more aspirated in English than it is in Israeli Hebrew, which would sound a little closer to a D than our, our American T. And But it's not even just that we don't get the phonology exactly the same as Israelis. It's also that American Jewish English is heavily influenced by Yiddish. So we say Torah, the penultimate stress, and some Jews do say Torah intentionally to try to sound closer to that Israeli norm, but I would say most Jews pronounce that and many other words with penultimate stress, not just because of the influence of Yiddish, but also because English has that same structure of mostly penultimate stress, so that the word Torah fits in better into the structure of English. You hear how that, the, the syllables, which syllables are stressed, it, it, it works better in English than saying... Um, read the Torah, and then it, that, that feels a little bit off in the syllable stress structure of English.
1: I'm flashing back to what I would call an intra faith or like an interesting encounter that I had with an Orthodox Jew a number of years ago. It was through this organization, Partners in Torah, um, and I was meeting with this guy via phone every couple weeks and like doing the Torah portion together. And I would read, like, we would each read the Hebrew sometimes. Um, and I, the, the one of the first times we met, I was reading the Hebrew, and I was saying words that ended, that had a tav sound with T. Um, and he immediately asked, oh, are you Sephardi? Because historically, it has been the case that this letter, Tav or Sav, is pronounced as a T sound by those who are Sephardi and as an S sound by those who are Ashkenazi. And for other groups, um, there's been been this TH sort of sound that we can see in names like Beth Israel. Um, People always ask, like, why is it Beth? There's not a TH sound. Well, "Well, there sort of is a TH sound in certain cases. But um, I, I think about that a lot, because it was this fascinating moment where to him, the only people that would say T are those who have this Sephardic background. But to me, like, I only learned Tav. I never was told that there was this S option in my Hebrew school growing up where the vast majority of people descended from Ashkenazi Jews who pronounced it S instead of T. So what was happening in that moment was not that I'm Sephardi, because I'm not. It was that I was embodying a new kind of relationship to Hebrew as an American Reform. Uh, well, I, I grew up in a Reform synagogue. I don't identify as one now, but like as an re- American Reform influenced Jew, and so I I just was curious to sort of hear your your director's cut of what was happening in that situation, and also maybe like uh, what I've learned since then is that there's been uh, like 50 years ago I le- I learned that like in some of these similar classrooms to the extent they were teaching Hebrew they would have taught the s sound in, in like a reform or a conservative classroom but as Israel became more of a more of a presence in the minds and hearts of American Jews that pronunciation sort of made its way in so I was curious to hear like what was happening in that situation
2: yeah so I'll start with the historical part American non-orthodox congregations and schools switched over from Ashkenazi pronunciation to Israeli-influenced American pronunciation between the 1920s and the early 1970s. Some started quite early to align with the emerging norm in Mandate Palestine, which would become Israel, and they intentionally switched from Ashkenazi to that more Israeli-influenced norm, and A lot of congregations switched in the late 40s after the state of Israel had been established. But the major switch in the reform movement in particular and and in many conservative congregations happened in the mid-60s, not just after the 1967 war, but also before that in 1964, 65, 66, that a lot of American congregations were becoming more Zionist, more oriented toward Israel, and intentionally switched over to that pronunciation. And that involved the use of T instead of S for that final th sound, and as well as the ultimate stress rather than penultimate stress in American Hebrew reading. Not always in the words that are used within English sentences, but when Jews are reading Torah, that is the norm to do that ultimate stress. So then your question about your interaction with the Orthodox man, I think that is understandable that he would associate that pronunciation with Sephardic Jews, although many Sephardic Jews would have a slightly different pronunciation from what you probably learned in your Reform Hebrew school, which is the use of the shvana, for example, saying beracha instead of bracha, and you probably were saying things in that more Ashkenazi-influenced way, like bracha, or um, maybe even bracha, but probably bracha at that point. So, So if he had been a Sephardic Jew himself, he would not have assumed that you were a Sephardic Jew because he would have noticed those other things about the way you're pronouncing Hebrew. And when I talked before about standard language ideology, I should have also mentioned that it's not just about How different people speak, but it's also about how people used to speak and how people speak now. When people are critical of the way that languages are, they're often critiquing language change. They're often concerned that people are speaking differently now than they used to, or that the young people are speaking differently than their own generation. And that is also the case among Jews, but it's complicated by these additional layers of all of the different diaspora Jewish pronunciations of Hebrew and the contemporary state of Israel and the fact that we have multiple Hebrews. We have modern Hebrew in Israel, which itself is very diverse and is spoken in different ways by people of different ethnic backgrounds and socioeconomic statuses. And we have Hebrews in our historical tradition, biblical, Mishnaic medieval, many different varieties, and those were all influenced by other languages at the time and by different ways of speaking and writing in different places. So there's always gonna be some diversity and some controversy about how people speak or ought to speak.
0: Until recently, or until I was reading your article, I was thinking that basically, We shouldn't really be teaching Hebrew too much in the, let's say, non-Orthodox world. And I was thinking about all the hours that are spent teaching Hebrew in various Jewish educational environments that kind of amount to like, not very much. These people feel not fluent, not even proficient, not in modern Hebrew, not in the liturgy of the Sidur. And so it's like, okay, so on the one hand, you can look at that question ideologically and say, we should be teaching Hebrew because it's important, blah, blah, blah. But another way to look at the question is, well, what could we have taught with those hours if we were teaching something else? And what strikes me, It's not that I don't think people should learn Hebrew. I'd love it if people learned Hebrew. But it's just the opportunity cost, basically, of what could be taught with all those other hours. But what I feel like I got from your writing, and particularly your writing about what you were seeing happening in the Jewish camping world, was that there's another lens through which to look at Hebrew Learning? Why would we be teaching Hebrew at all? That's very different from proficiency or fluency. And, and I would love it if you could go into that a little bit and, and talk about what is a, another way that we might look at the function of Hebrew in contemporary Jewish life and, and how that might have implications on education.
2: Well, this is a study that I'm finishing up with my colleagues Jonathan Krasner and Sharon Avni. And we looked at Jewish summer camps in America historically and today. We did interviews with hundreds of staff members and campers and alumni and archival research and a survey of 103 camp directors, and we visited 36 camps. That was the very fun part of the research for me. I got to visit 27 camps personally and um, loved every minute of it. So I learned from this research that the way that American Jewish summer camps use Hebrew is primarily not about fostering proficiency among campers. The way that Hebrew is used at most American Jewish summer camps is about connection. It's about fostering a community within the camp and fostering a sense that Jews value Hebrew and they do this through all sorts of techniques, Hebrew word of the day skits. Another thing is camp Hebraized English, using Hebrew words within English sentences, like, chanichim and madrichim go to the teatron for piolat erev, which means campers and counselors go to the theater for the evening activity. And that kind of sentence is... Is that English? Well, it's English with many Hebrew words, and most of the main words in that sentence are Hebrew. And so it would not be comprehensible to someone who has not spent time in Jewish summer camp. Even if they know those Hebrew words, it might take them longer to understand it because they're not used to that specifically camp Hebraized English. Um, Another thing that camps do is theatrical productions in Hebrew. Um, So at camps like Ramah, for example, they do their theatrical productions in Hebrew, often American musicals translated into basic Hebrew and shortened uh, so that it's not the full production. And so these are examples of ways that camps use Hebrew as a way of getting American Jews to love Hebrew and to feel personally connected to Hebrew and to broader Jewish collectivities like Jews around the world and Zionists and Israelis and also to other American Jews especially American Jews who have attended summer camps.
1: There's this phenomenon that I know that you've studied where and, and you alluded to this before but where where Hebrew words at camp are utilized. But to to the vast majority of people saying them, they don't mean what they mean in Hebrew. They mean like the name of the building or whatever. And so I, I'm thinking back to at my own camp, there was a building called the Beit Am, which means like house of the people. It's actually like looking back a really beautiful name. It was it was where arts and crafts were and where like it was this cool idea that like, oh, the house of the people is where some of these some of these cool activities like arts and crafts would happen. Fine. So I thought bedam was one word. I thought that it was bedam. And not just as like a third grader and fourth grader, all the way through my entire camp experience, including to when I was a counselor, I thought bedam was one word. And what it meant was that building over there. It didn't mean house of the people. It meant that building over there. And when I first started learning Hebrew, I would have these moments in Hebrew class in college where I was like sad to myself and like, Oh my gosh, I, I didn't know what this meant. Like I was saying this thing at camp and like I didn't know what the heck it was. Like I was so terribly served. And maybe there's an argument for that, but also like something incredibly cool happened in, in that I was gifted this word, betam. Once again, which is like not a real, it's not a word. It's two words and there's, but like, I was gifted this word that was a secret code that every single person at my camp knew what it meant. And the Hebrew speakers probably were like analyzing why, like, why is this building with the arts and crafts called House of the People? Um, in Within that building, there was a room called o- a- Amanut. It wasn't, it, Omanut is the Hebrew word, but it was called, uh, which means art, and it was called, everybody called it Amanut, which is not, uh, but like, that was the correct pronunciation at camp, even though it wasn't the correct pronunciation of the actual word. So I guess, I, I like I want, I know that's a common thing across many camps that whether it's buildings or time slots in the day, um, wh- whatever it is that people use these Hebrew words for, they sort of hold a value that is different than what the word means. So I was curious if you could reflect on on, on that piece.
2: There are certainly many camps that have that situation where there's a building with a particular name that some people understand is from Hebrew, but other people don't. So uh, some campers at one camp said that they always assumed that the Chader Ochel was just another name of a building, like Porter Hall. And they didn't know until later in life that it is a Hebrew phrase.
1: Meaning dining room or dining hall.
2: And then you also have the opposite At some camps, there are buildings with English names or acronyms that people assume are Hebrew because so many of the other words at camp come from Hebrew. Like an example is at Camp Swig, which doesn't exist anymore. There was a place called the Gabawap, which is the grassy area behind the Ulam and Pool. It's an (laughs) acronym. And most people did not understand that. Most people assumed that that was a Hebrew word. Or at a Mosheva, a B'nai Akiva camp, there was the RML which stood for Rosh Mosh Lishka, which is like the, the office of the head of, of the camp. Some people thought that that was Aramel, which was a, a Hebrew word, Ayin Reh or something like that. And so, so you get this kind of confusion. But when you said you were gifted the word Beit Am, and you, you talked about it as a gift in that it connected you to the camp community, you were also gifted specifically a Hebrew word. It wasn't a Native American word, which was the case at many American camps and even many American Jewish camps in the early 20th century. It was specifically a Hebrew word and that was an additional gift because then later when you were learning Hebrew and you made those connections about bait meaning bite and um, and then you might even have learned about smichut, which is the construct state in Hebrew where bite becomes bait when there's a noun that follows it. And so all of those things that you later learned were planted as a seed when that building was called Beit Am.
1: Okay, so I have this proposal for, I don't know, the world, for for everyone that I've been itching to put out there, and this is the perfect opportunity to do it, so I feel like I should do it. Um, But uh, so first, a, a couple things I'm noticing. One, we have mostly been talking about Hebrew, and Yiddish. And like, granted, how those things sort of get mapped on to the English language and to Jewish English, but we've still been talking about those two languages that, you know, in our heads and hearts and et cetera, are like, specifically Jewish languages. And I want to name that because I think that that misses part of the equation. I'm not saying you are unaware of this. I'm saying that just in our conversation, we've ended up going in this direction. And so I want to talk about English, which is the language that we're speaking. And I want to talk about it not only in terms of how Hebrew and Yiddish, et cetera, get plugged into it, but as as itself. Um, And so here's my radical proposal. Here's why I want to bring this up. Um, This might feel like a gear shift. Um, I've been doing Gematria. Um, Gematria is... It's actually a cool word. Um, it it comes from the Greek geometry um, and then it was sort of hebraized it it turned into a Hebrew word, Gamatria, which isn't quite geometry, but it is Jewish numerology. It's like roughly related to geometry, not quite the same. Um, but it's this idea that every Hebrew letter gets a numerical value. and then as a result, every Hebrew word, gets a numerical value that's the sum of the letters. And then once you have the sum of those letters, um, you can do these interesting comparisons and interpretations based on, oh, this word has the same value as that word. We can find a new meaning that we wouldn't have seen otherwise. It's it's something that I really enjoy um, and have found some deep meaning in occasionally. That It's common in a lot of mystic literature that's, that's important to me. So uh, that's how it's historically been mobilized. I've been doing it in English a little bit, just sort of tiptoeing into the waters of doing this with English, where I've been assigning, similar to the Hebrew structure, you know, A gets the number one, B gets the number two, et cetera, et cetera. So I've been trying to play with this in a language that is in Hebrew. And this strikes people maybe as a little funny, or at the very least as radical, um, because I think that it pushes against the idea that Hebrew is really the only language where you could do this, this historic idea that Hebrew really is a special kind of sacred where it gets certain kinds of interpretive devices like gematria and other languages don't. And I'm sort of coming from this diasporic place of, yeah, well, maybe every language can be a Jewish language and a holy, sacred Jewish language, even if it's not only used by Jews or only used for Jewish purposes. So, so I'm coming from that kind of place and thinking, you know, maybe we could do this with French and with German and with Hindi, with, with any language. Um, so I wanted to throw that out there and say, like, am I not thinking this through? Is there something I should really reconsider about this? Or maybe on the other hand, does this excite you? Does this seem like a cool idea for the future of Jewish language?
2: Yeah, I like the idea of applying something that has been used for Hebrew to our spoken language. I think it, it could certainly work. Of course, you have the issue of what, which letters are which, and do you do it based on the correlates of the English letters and the Hebrew letters, or do you do it based on the order of the alphabet? Um, but I want to get at the, the broader issue that you raised of can any language be a Jewish language? And I certainly say yes, wherever Jews have lived, they have spoken and written in a somewhat distinctive way in relation to their non-Jewish neighbors. And it's funny that you said languages that identify as Jewish, because of course, as we said, languages don't identify as anything, but um, the people who speak identify the way they speak as a certain thing, and identify the way that other people speak as a certain thing. And so the way that most American Jews speak English is variable and can sometimes be exactly the same as the way that non-Jews speak English. But often there are distinctive features, whether that is words from Hebrew, Yiddish, Latino, other languages, or distinctive intonations, like, if you've heard it, you know what I'm talking about. Or, um, you know, that's a kind of radical example because it's chanting, but or, just the way I said or right there is a, a... a more dramatized um, transition um, or is influenced by that kind of chanting intonation that's common in Talmud study. So there there are features at many aspects of language, even the release of T at the end of words, so saying right rather than right. Or the practice of overlapping Um, when Jews speak, they often overlap with each other. People might call it interrupting, but I prefer to call it overlapping Um, because it's not really interrupting because the person who was speaking, if they're also aware of this practice and are um, part of a community that does it themselves, won't stop speaking. They'll just keep speaking and finish up, and there's a little overlap between the two speakers. So there are many distinctive features in American Jewish English, just as there are many distinctive features in Judeo-Arabic as it compares to Arabic in any given location, in Baghdad or in Cairo. So this is certainly a worldwide phenomenon, and I am always happy when people... Are thinking about American Jews as continuing the historical traditions of Jews around the world and throughout history. So I think it's great that you are thinking in those ways.
1: Well, good. that's great. Um, that that makes me feel really good. um I, uh, I I feel like I'm asking the same question like over and over again, and I'm just like switching the the subject. it's like i'm I'm doing like, hey, this language thing is a thing, right? And I'm just like putting that on, and like thus far it's been great. So I'm going to try it one last time. Um, I On the same wavelength as this Jewish numerology thing I've been doing, I'm really interested at how sometimes people use, they, they do interpretive mechanisms that once again have been traditionally done on Hebrew with English words. So I'm thinking of some that have become common, and this is actually anecdotally, it seems to be common in like a Jewish renewal kind of context um, where people do this. But like atonement, I've, I've heard many sermons at this point that say, ah, at one mint. The, the idea of atonement as being at-one, because when you spell it out, it's at one Now, the, the Hebrew word that that's translating, teshuva, you, you can't really do that same maneuver in the Hebrew to make it about at one mint. Um, but I've heard in multiple contexts this idea. And similarly, I've heard people Translate the prayer before Torah study, La asok Torah, d- d- um, as which which means like to busy yourself to to get deeply into Torah study, um, to, to words of Torah. I've heard people translate La asok as to soak into, because La the soak part sounds like soak, um, and like it's not a direct translation, but it's sort of roughly right. Um, And lately, one that I'd throw in that I've been playing around with is people ask me how I'd translate amen, and I've been saying, I'm in. Um, Amen, I'm in. I think in wordplay a lot. That's part of why this is all very fascinating to me. but like amen like it it's hard to translate but it it roughly is an affirm it, it comes from the root of belief of emunah but amen at the end of a prayer is sort of like i'm in like i'm on board um so i've that's how i've translated it because i'm in also happens to sound like amen so i guess i was curious like to the extent that you've immersed in in some of those word plays um like if if you think once again that there that there could be a whether that's Maybe there's ancient versions of that in other languages I don't know about, Um, but also like, is there something happening there that I might not have sort of fully thought through or that listeners might not have thought through that gets it sort of the why behind why they would do that?
2: Yeah, I'm so glad you brought up wordplay. Um, A future project that I may eventually do after all the other projects I'm currently working on is people of the pun, (laughs) thinking about Jews as historically and currently being engaged with wordplay, because that is, that has always been an important part of Jewish textual interpretation. There are even puns in the Tanakh, in the the Bible. There are puns throughout rabbinic literature, and not just using the Hebrew, but also thinking about meanings in thinking about wordplay between Greek and Hebrew, or between other, Jewish, other languages that Jews have spoken, and Hebrew. And so I love the examples of at one mint" and I'm-in and to soak in the words of Torah. Those are beautiful. Uh, and there also are ritual versions of this kind of wordplay. For example, the Yehi which is the um, Seder that is done, the ceremonial foods that are eaten around Rosh Hashanah, on Erev Rosh Hashanah, um, the night of Rosh Hashanah, and those uh, foods are based on wordplay. They're based on things like oh um, Rosh Hashanah, the head of the year, so we eat a fish head. Or the um, in in Sephardic communities, there are some that that relate to. Um, Spanish words, and in Ashkenazi communities, there are some that relate to Yiddish words. For example, um, it's it's less ritualized in Ashkenazi communities, but there is a tradition of eating carrots on Rosh Hashanah, because the word for carrots is merin, but that also means to multiply, and so you should be fruitful and multiply in the coming year. Or eating cabbage, uh, because there's a phrase kol mevaser in Hebrew and Yiddish, and that means good tidings voice of good tidings, and kol mitvaser in Yiddish or German means cabbage with water. And so eating a cabbage dish and a carrot dish are some examples of how this wordplay plays out in ceremonial foods surrounding Rosh Hashanah.
0: One of the the theories that I've had uh, is that since the Language that the Jews spoke for much of Jewish history was actually Aramaic and not Hebrew. That it's made me wonder, and I don't know if there's any way to really know but whether some of the wordplay that's become that that was part of Judaism from the very beginning was actually enabled largely because the rabbis were not exactly fluent in Hebrew because they you know because if you're fluent in a language i think you often miss some of the puns because you just kind of hear the meaning of the word you're not actually sort of paying attention that closely and that that some of that jumps out more at you when you're not quite fluent in the language or when you're uh you know seeing seeing the language that 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 you come from so for so you know for for my kind of camp or day school background it was always the the idea of uh that a that the way to say a fish in hebrew is dog uh or dog you know and 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 so there was a joke right that there's a, a fish and a dog have something in common with one another which of course no is really is likely to see
2: well, that's because in Israel they're pronounced quite differently: dag versus right, dog, right? right? They're, they're totally right, right. different vowels. Where, but in some dialects of English, they're they're much closer. Um, but yeah, this is Jews have always been multilingual, right? Um, you know, the Israelites may have spoken Hebrew, but by the time they were Jews, they had other languages in their midst, whether that was Aramaic or Greek, and and eventually Persian and Latin and Arabic and many other languages. Um, Aramaic is still spoken by uh, some Jews, although that is one of the many diaspora Jewish languages that is highly endangered and is only spoken by older people and has not been passed on to subsequent generations. But yeah, when the rabbis were thinking in Aramaic but writing in Hebrew or thinking in Greek but writing in Aramaic, you know, those those are great examples of multilingualism influencing their worldview, influencing how they are interpreting texts and what rituals they're doing. And we American Jews are continuing that tradition.
1: So I wanted to, to get back to the overlapping piece, um, interrupting as overlapping People, uh, I mean, I've mentioned on the podcast many, many times um, that I'm in an interfaith relationship. Um, and when people ask about, when people talk about interfaith relationships, I often think they're talking about the wrong things. Um, people always are ready to talk about Christmas trees and and the extent to which that is scary or exciting or good or bad or whatever. Um, to me, the the most present, the most present regular interfaith challenge that Valerie and I have is our speech patterns. It is really disorienting for her to have me interrupt from her perspective. And and it doesn't even feel to me like I'm interrupting. It feels like the overlapping piece. And I was hanging out with my mom recently, and I was noticing that most sentences, we like by the book interrupt each other. So, and and, and as the flip side, when I say something and like there's a pause for a little while. It feels to me like something weighty or scary is happening. Or like, like, what, did I just say something wrong? When, when actually, like, Valerie is just, like, taking a moment and, like, responding, which I, like, I don't usually do. Like, we're, we're usually just in the midst of each other's sentences. And it's been like a, it, it's not that it, like, is the most terrifying thing, but it's it's a challenge that we regularly confront. And it gets at something, and why I'm asking it at the close, like, it gets at something which I think is deep, which is that Language isn't just language. Language is sort of, I don't want to say like the battleground, but but it's like a site where a lot of other issues end up presenting. So in this case, it's interfaith issues, interfaith questions, interfaith topics. By the way, I think there's beautiful, awesome things that have happened as a result of our different language and speech patterns um, as well. But I was curious, just as a closer, um, to ask whether it's about this particular interfaith piece, about the overlapping, or just more generally, like, what what should we take away from, from the role that language plays in our lives as Jews and more broadly as human beings? Like, what can we learn from this whole set of threads that we've been investigating today?
2: when we talk about people's views about languages their language ideologies about how people speak or should speak what they're really talking about is how people are or should be they're they're thinking about their views of what it means to be human and what it means to be in a particular community and so you're absolutely right that when a jew and a non-jew interact and have problems with their language it's really it's not it's more than just problems with their language it's Problems with their their um, being human, being together, right? And actually, the the woman who wrote "You Just Don't Understand" is um, the one who originally researched this phenomenon. Her name her name is Deborah Tannen, and she wrote her she wrote a dissertation about a Thanksgiving dinner that had some Jewish guests from New York and some non-Jewish guests from California and elsewhere, and she wrote about their different speech styles and how the non-Jews felt that the New York Jews were dominating and were talking over each other and talking over them. And, and, and it's not just Jews and non-Jews who have this problem. It's people of all different backgrounds who have different communication styles that sometimes lead to conflict. And there's a whole field about this kind of issue. and and resolving those problems, and the first step is to be aware of it. And it sounds like you and your partner we are. Got aware that? meal we're
1: very aware of it.
2: Yeah, that's good. That's good. Um, but you're absolutely right that when we talk about language, whether it's newly Orthodox Jews learning Yiddish grammatical constructions or the Hebrew words used at American Jewish summer camps, or whether or not rabbis translate on the bima, we are talking about what Jews are or should be. Should Jews be orienting toward Israel? Should Jews be orienting toward our sacred texts? Should Jews be orienting toward our immigration history? Should Jews be engaged with non-Jews within their communities? Should Jews be a more exclusive community? So all of the questions about language are really broader questions that American Jews need to be thinking about.
1: Thank you so much for joining us. This has been a fantastic conversation.
2: Thank you so much for having me. It's been a pleasure. And keep up the great work on your show.
1: And thanks, of course, also to all of you out there listening. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook page, Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our Twitter feed at at Judaism Unbound. Third, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. And last but not least, you can always hit us up via email at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. The last request we like to make is that we always deeply, deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation you're able to spare and send our way. And you can do that by heading to judaismunbound.com slash donate with either a monthly recurring gift or a one-time donation. So thanks so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound.